0: Hi, and welcome back to The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to welcome Ertan Khan founding partner of Multiple Capital, one of Europe's truly visionary fund of funds pioneering micro VC and seed fund investing. It's absolutely no coincidence that Erton has named his fund Multiple, as the word holds key to his strategy. Democratise access to a diversified portfolio of multiple managers across multiple geographies, multiple sectors and multiple vintages. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Hack & Hustles launching the second cohort of their first fundraise accelerator program tailor-made for European first-time founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round. In 10 weeks, founders learn directly from European VC champions while they build and execute on a no BS fundraise prep that will secure them their next round of financing fast. It's up or out. If founders don't keep up the pace, they're kicked. So participation and progress is ensured for the most ambitious teams. Invite founders in your network to visit hackhustle.co and apply to get connected to the European VC.
1: Brereton, welcome to the European VC. We're so happy to have you. Before we start, I need to say I'm super excited today because we have so many amongst our audience just dying to hear from someone like you who spends all your time looking at emerging managers and the value that they can get from hearing your perspectives you know, it's just incredible. So Ayrton, thanks a million for joining us.
2: I'm happy to join. Thank you very much for the invite. I'm happy to share, you know, some of my views.
1: Awesome. Ayrton, before we jump into the origin story of multiple capital, I just want to make something clear, which is you do both angel investing in the very small funds, and then you invest out of multiple. I'd like to hear just to have that nuance to it. And also so that the people listening in can hear that, oh, if you're only doing a 2 million fund as your first fund, Arsene is still very relevant for you to be thinking about.
2: Yeah, I think I'm not really relevant in terms of you know size, but that's the kind of, you know, everyone or a lot of investors, even if they are VCs or GPs in a fund, they do sometimes angel investments, right? So I'm also doing angel investments, but my angel investments are not into companies, but in funds. So that's the kind of angel investment that I do and those are tiny tickets in tiny funds you know if you're raising a 1 million proof fund like this is too small even for multiple which is a very small structure itself but this would be even too small for multiple to invest and this is something where I'm chipping in some of my private money because I believe in those people or in their setups and try to understand who they are and how they develop and also you know, make a bet myself into an investment where I think this could make sense for me personally.
3: Let me interrupt you Artin, and ask, and I think this will do the perfect bridge for you to talk about the origin story of multiple, but why do you personally prefer doing to angel investments into funds? rather than super exciting startups? You know, a lot of startups also cross (laughs) your views, I'm sure, on a daily basis.
2: To be honest, I don't feel that I'm the right angel investor in startups. I am, by the way. I've done, I think, two angel investments in startups too. I met them through my work with multiple, and we're still, like, they're startups. We're working together even. So it makes sense from my personal view of, you know, what that startup really does Related to multiple and the asset management industry or venture capital industry, but I couldn't invest into a deep tech company, for example, or I could. I think I'm not able to understand if Tier or Gorillas or Deliveroo or something like that will be the next big thing. I'm just not this kind of investor, and because of my work with multiple, you know, where I try to understand who of the emerging managers and GPs might be good investments, and that's again something like diversifying your risk by investing in someone who is able for you to source and select and invest into companies that might be great companies. So I'm trusting those person to invest into a handful of companies or a dozen of companies. I'm better in doing this. So I'm better in understanding, you know, if someone is a good investor into tech companies versus investing directly into tech companies. That's, I think, the simple answer to that. So (laughs) yeah, maybe the changes in the future, but I
3: I, I have the feeling that all startups that are building solutions for the VC world will now cram your LinkedIn after this.
2: (laughs) Honestly, I get a lot of noise in LinkedIn because people don't understand that I'm an LP. They think I'm a VC, right? And that's why I think if I get 10 LinkedIn messages, nine of them are pitches from startups. They don't understand the LP side. I don't understand what they do. Most of the time, I don't have this time and, and, and resources to go through the pitch deck. And, you know, it's not my job. It's not like I don't have really time for doing this. So unless someone is really specialized in something and knows someone, and has a network and gets access to a, a company where he can put some time into it, I wouldn't have time to look into all those LinkedIn messages uh, when it comes from a startup itself. Right. So sometimes I get a LinkedIn messages from startups. They understand what I do and they ask me to introduce to any fund. Like even that is sometimes difficult, but imagine if if I get 1,000 emails from (laughs) startups helping them to find out who the right VC is. It's just a lot of work and a lot of time commitment that you need, which I don't have at the moment.
3: You can always forward it to us. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm going to derail this a bit because he said something that I'm actually really curious to know in your opinion and sorry for the marketing, but associated to our podcast, we started doing a thing with founders. We explained the business of VC almost as if you were a VC. But then we kind of deconstructed to say, okay, but then what does that mean for your startup? Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how insightful founders have been finding these small courses that we're doing. And even when I think of my personal journey into kind of start understanding what VC is, so going from, oh, VC is cool because it's everywhere, it's marketing, right? And then understanding really what it was. It was a long process and it was painful in some (laughs) times and expensive as well. It always makes me think about the transparency and the openness of the industry And I think we've gone a lot forward over the last couple of years, but do you have thoughts about that, of what could be done to make our industry a bit more transparent and more understandable for general people, but also for founders, because that's part of our target, right?
2: So I think one of the things that makes it more transparent are sessions like yours, right? So podcasts where people are sharing their views or sharing their experiences, you ask questions, and I think that's part of the transparency it is still a very, and it will, I think, be always a very intransparent ecosystem or market. Why? Because the universe of startups or you know, creating a company is so wide, right? So if you look at Europe alone, you have probably, I don't know, 100,000 potential startups every year, right? So companies like people who are, who are thinking about founding a company and trying to raise capital and reach out to angels or VCs, Probably there are hundreds of thousands every year. So that's the reason why the market accessing companies and you know raising capital is still inefficient. There is no efficiency in that market, in my opinion. But it gets more efficient by you know funds that do a better work in terms of publishing documents, publishing information. Like for example, I remember Seedcamp. They have published a pitch deck. Right. So how they pitch to their investors and it gives so much insight into camp and how they think and how they build their company. That's a lot of transparency in the market. Also for other GPs, right, for other VCs. And and, and other things I think are and it's getting, again, very transparent because the more like I was talking about accelerators, accelerators can help to have more transparency by educating founders, right? So I'm an investor and in entrepreneur first and in UK. Yeah. It's not an accelerator, by definition, but it is helping the industry. It is helping founders to understand better the whole venture ecosystem and to build better companies and to raise capital more efficiently. And there are other companies like EF who are doing the same thing. So this all helps. And I think podcasts, public information available for a lot of founders, as well as GPs. There is a group called Venture Lab at the ORS. Yeah, Founder yeah. Institute. Institute. Lab. Founder Institute. They do a lot to make things in venture more transparent. I'm a part of a fellowship called 101, which is a handful of VCs offering regular sessions to interns, right? Fellows in the 101 fellowship. And educating them on, you know, their questions and, you know, how do you raise capital for a company? How does a venture capital fund raise capital and what's necessary? What is a successful fund? And You know, like very simple answers and questions that they have, but there's no standard information about that, right? So that's the way how I have the feeling in the last eight to nine years, we have a lot more transparency in the market. So it's, it's I see that also when new emerging managers reach out to me. I see that they are extremely well-educated, extremely well-informed about what they are going to do and how they raise capital, from whom they are going to raise capital, what kind of jurisdiction they're choosing, etc., etc. Eight years ago, this was really much, much more transparent.
1: I'm curious, Arton, because when we talked with Joe, he said that sometimes they actually go in and almost act like a venture builder for with emerging managers. Yeah. To what extent do you do the same thing?
2: Not to an extent as Joe and, and Isomer is probably doing it, as you know, Joe's team is just much bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in a way they are more experienced as an institutional investor. It's quite clear, right? So if you compare Isomer with multiple, that they are more in the institutional side and probably can answer m- more uh, questions around that. I feel quite confident and help in things like how to structure a fund. Right? So what's the right portfolio structure? What should be your fund size? I spend a lot of time uh, in the last eight years to understand what kind of portfolio fund size makes sense, how many companies with your thesis make sense, how much you should invest in what stage and how much you should reserve in capital. I think that's something where I'm extremely focused, but I'm not a good help in terms of, you know, how to set up a site letter or how to reach out to the biggest institutional LPs. I don't know that. Right. So I, I don't have an answer there.
1: You make it sound like it's a small, uh, small value. <laughs> I, I think you're a bit too humble there.
2: One thing that I realized is that most emerging managers have difficulties to do their first reporting in the first reporting Many of them seem to not really, in the beginning at least, understand what's relevant for us. And it's very simple, what kind of numbers we expect to see you know, in a quarterly report. So what I've done is, because in my view, this is so simple, it just, we just created a table and share it with some of the emerging managers where we think it's missing. Well, do they integrate it? So far, not really. Uh, they're always <laughs> thankful for you know, getting this. And I think it should. this, this kind of standard, should be more transparent and more you know public that these are the tables that we expect at least right so that's the minimum of data that we would need from an emerging manager
3: can we ask you um overview of course so what are the core components that you like to see in those tables
2: look one of the things is that many emerging managers don't publish and even for themselves probably don't really understand what their fund kpis are so it's very simple like how much have you invested? How much have you called capital? What is the current NAV of your you know investments? How much cost did you produce? So management fee and other costs. So what is your you know gross multiple? What is your total value to paid in? What is your distribution to paid in? What is your cross IRR? What is your net IRR? These are simple and standard numbers fund KPIs. Yeah, that every GP. Should be super safe on and publish for himself every quarter and share with his LPs as well. Some do that quite well, and some lack it. I don't know why. Uh, it's it's a it's a weird thing, and that's where I try to give an overview. I can't we can't push them. Like I'm not investing or not investing into a GP just because he's not reporting the numbers, right? So. I'm investing into a GP because I think he's a good investor and the numbers will just follow. It doesn't matter if you publish or not publish the numbers. The numbers are still the same, right? So it's important to understand it's not a reason not to invest. But it's better to have those numbers, right? It's easier for us, for our work, to understand what's happening in the portfolio. It's easier for us to make our reporting. So that that's just standard things. But I think this will improve and change in the future. Hopefully, we will have platforms like Carta and others in Europe, you know, helping doing this in an automated. way way because it's simple things it's standard things it's
1: curious how you hear lps complaining about gps exhibiting the same behavior as founders that the gps are annoyed at (laughs) for not reporting in a standardized structured manner
2: (laughs) yes and the this kind of annoyance the better the gp is or the more sought he is right so the more he's annoyed of reporting. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the world that we live in today, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But if you're investing your own money, so for my angel tickets, right? Angel investments into 1 million funds. I don't care, right? So it's nice to have. It's good if I get some overview and report, but it's not really something that I need, right? So it's fine to have an understanding once a year. Maybe i call the GP and ask him, hey, how's the portfolio going? Like? But for multiple we need like you know, quarterly things because we are managing capital from other people. So we need to report ourselves. And that's why this is more important for multiple. If it's your own money, if you're a wealthy person, you're putting money into 20 funds, you can live probably with no reporting or, or minimal reporting. But as soon as you're an a institu- like kind of institutional investor, I wouldn't call myself an institutional investor, but a you know, kind of institutional investor, you need the standard data that you have to integrate into your own reporting.
1: And on that note, I think we should get back to the first question that we really (laughs) should ask, which is, Ayrton, please give us the origin story of Multiple Capital. I personally love it. I've heard it
2: before. I'm looking very much forward to bringing this to our audience. Sure. Happy to do that. I am the founder of Multiple and I founded Multiple in 2018, you know, the firm Multiple Capital. And before that, I was doing this, more or less the same thing at a German family office where I started 2012. I was hired, you know, typical family office kind of setup. I was hired as the first person to do venture. So the first job I had there was to invest in early stage companies so I started investing into early stage companies and I had a huge learning curve and you know 2012 2013 a lot of people didn't even know what venture capital is so a lot of my friends didn't understand what I'm doing etc and so I started and invested in 20 plus companies very quickly and then realized the first big learning in venture which was you know adverse selection so you have a lot of potential companies in venture but there are only a few who will be very successful and most of the other companies will not be successful. We call that adverse selection, accessing those relevant companies. And I realized, you know, working as a one-man show in a family office, it's just super difficult to get access to those companies. And if you want to really be realistic, it's just very, very difficult to get access. And even if you identify the right companies, you might not get into that round, right? Because They have an offer maybe from a 0.9 or other really good investors. There's no reason for them to take your money. So that's the kind of adverse selection that I've understood after one or two years. I went back to the family and said, look, I think we shouldn't continue doing this, right? So I think and it was like a a tough conversation because I was an employee, you know, I had to pay my bills and everything. And so I went back and said, I think it's not the right thing for a family office like us. You know, a relatively, let's say, mid-sized family office. We can't really hire a whole team doing only venture. So I felt that it's not the right thing for the family office, and I felt that it will not really return money to us. And so the family office was like about to fire me and ask me, okay, thank you. Yeah, what should we do now? And I said, let me suggest something different. Let me build a pan-European funder fund for you. That was like the birth of what I call today fund one, multiple mm-hmm. fund one. You know, The name wasn't existent at that time. Yeah, but yeah. That's the first portfolio that I've built. So instead of investing in German early stage companies, I started to screen and source pan-European seed funds. So the thesis was at that time already the same thing, to invest in micro funds and seed stage funds. So I started to you know, go to the Nordics, to UK, to France, to Southern Europe, to Switzerland, Eastern Europe, and source hundreds of funds, like try to understand who is relevant in each market, each vertical, who is relevant in life science, who's relevant in, you know, at that time, there was no real deep tech funds. But who are the relevant players, mainly at that time, you know, local players, local seed funds. So I would say I met most of them, and tried to make an idea of who should be in my portfolio. And then I invested in 10 funds for the um, family office and screening something like 600 funds and investing in 10 funds. That's what I consider my first fund one with the same thesis that I'm doing today with multiple. And I really felt that I found my own niche, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone else was focusing on something else. And I had the feeling I'm one of the very, very few at that time really going to other countries and investing into other VC funds. Just an example, at that time, I've invested in two UK funds. In both of those UK funds, I was the only non-UK LP. You, you can't fair. even imagine that, right, today. So no. it's, uh, and still, most of the funds, emerging managers, seed funds, raise mainly local money. Yeah. So yeah. you don't have a Swedish family office investing into a Spanish fund or a Spanish family office investing into a Finnish fund. You know, Very rarely does that happen.
3: I've been involved in those conversations, and they are tough with DLPs, and they are tough conversations because there is some kind of, um, I'm not sure if it's risk aversity. I'm not sure what it is, but those are really, really tough conversations, sure. right?
1: What I've found in Denmark is always that it's a question of affinity, national affinity, so the family offices most often want to invest in something close because they've made a lot of money, and now they want to give back, and... Sure, we could give back to Italy, but I think I want to give back to Southern Denmark.
2: <laughs> but imagine, just to give you an example, in risk, if you're investing into public equity, and most family of do invest yeah. in public equity, imagine you wouldn't invest into Apple, yeah, but yeah. It yeah. into the Danish phone maker, right? Yeah. So that just doesn't make sense, right? No. So that's, that's what I'm trying to explain for years now. You don't know where the next Skype or the next TransferWise or the next Revolut will be created. UiPath was created in Romania. No one expected a company like that coming out of Romania. So it's not like enough to invest, in my opinion, only into a local company or a local fund if they are investing locally. That's a big, I think, misunderstanding of the venture ecosystem. I think today most of players like multiple should be more and more global, right? So try to build, if they can, if they have enough capital, should be built a global portfolio. Because we don't know where the next companies will be created. And if you want to be part of those next outlier companies, you have to be very open in terms of geography and vertical.
1: I'm trying to uh, say the same thing to everyone I meet in the VC world about what GPs you'll be doing. <laughs> because at least, of course, for the small GPs, the very small ones, I think it still makes sense to be geographically focused. Yes, I agree. But for a uh, 50, 70, 80, 100 million euro fund, that's where you need to start focusing on Europe as a market.
2: (laughs) So I I have a very detailed opinion on that. Do expound on it? Yes, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, So one thing, maybe I can start with thesis of multiple, which was always to invest in either local generalists, small funds that invest in one region, and broad in the topics, so as a generalist fund. Or you invest into one vertical, one niche, and then in a wider region. So just to give you an example, either you are a Nordics-focused seed fund or you are a Fintech-focused pan-European fund. I think it's very difficult for seed or small funds to be a global investor. I don't believe in the, really in the generalist pan-European or even global generalist seed funds. It's very, very difficult to do that. And it just comes down to the number like the universe, the number of companies that you have to screen or have access to. The bigger the markets, right, the higher the number, if it's generous. If you're reducing it to one vertical, if you're doing only life science or only, you know, some specific thing, then you're reducing the number of companies that you're going to look at. So the only thing I think, the only vertical that I see where it's truly a global game at the moment is the whole blockchain and crypto venture part where people, even if they are based in Eastern Europe, are investing into global projects. So that's something that is new. But a life science-focused fund, it's very difficult for them to source, if they are in France, to source U.S. companies early stage. And then it comes to the next question, is if the funds are becoming bigger. So if you are anatomical and you do multi-stage, multi-region, you have a huge team, then it's different, right? So you're investing later. Later stage, you have less companies to look at. So it's not the same as seed stage. So if you're investing in series a and b rounds of course you can source in a much much wider region right so that that makes your deal flow smaller and that's like the combination you need like either you are a bigger fund investing later stage then you can go more global probably still i think it's difficult for the european bigger funds to source the right companies in the us because there's so much capital in the us and so yeah. good investors right so and vice versa. It's not easy. Well, let's say it's easier. Yeah, it's easier for Sequoia to source a company in Europe. If it's in a Series A or Series B company.
1: But that's also a bit on Europe, right? <laughs> because we have so few funds who have done a lot on the PR front in the same way yeah. as they have in the US. Uh, that means that we have more people in more founders in Europe who knows Sequoia and A16C than who knows Index and Axel. And That's a sorry state.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that changed. And I think the new established emerging managers in Europe are great brands and are also at least seen by a lot of other venture capitalists in the U.S. So there's much more collaboration compared to five to ten years ago. And that's a great thing. That's, again, something that I would consider even a something like a niche, right? So an access in Europe where people have access to something specific, which is very difficult for a seed fund from the U.S. when they want to invest in Europe, right? So it's, yeah. it's just too far
3: away for them. No, I really want to ask this, and I know you've been asked a similar question in a podcast that I actually listened to, but I want to ask it a bit differently because you're hinting to the fact that a seed stage fund cannot be sourcing globally, right? It's a numbers game at the end of the day. You just don't have enough operational power to do it. It's just impossible. <laughs> there's no like, <laughs> there's no arguing around that. This is my opinion, right? So yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. But but it brings in another topic, which is could venture be made more scalable? The same way, for example, you know, Netflix industrialized, the filmmaking industry, you know, the quantity of content they create now is astonishing if you compare it to 15 years ago. But the quality is... (laughs) <laughs> 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 that is also true.
1: That is also true. They've been taking home some big medals at uh, Cannes Festival. <laughs> exactly.
3: And, and, and <laughs> but, point being, is there anything there that you see as opportunity areas that excite you to make the operating model of venture more efficient, more quick, more scalable?
2: There are two parts uh, on this question. I think one question I think I've answered with one of my previous comments by, you know, the universe of companies and even today you have even a bigger universe of startups because a lot of people are you know creating companies and the other thing is like because it's new things it is very difficult to understand what is the next new thing right so two years ago no one really looked at blockchain companies blockchain and crypto from a venture perspective this is now the big thing this year right so everyone has FOMO and investing a lot of money into venture projects venture blockchain venture crypto projects so we don't know what the next things are in two years and four years and six years. So in the next vintages might be life science, might be completely different things like quantum or space tech. I don't know. Right. So and I'm always telling my LPs I'm agnostic. I don't have an opinion about the market. I really don't know. Right. So if I see a great GP and he explains to me that space tech is the next big thing, really, and that he believe, like can make me believe that this is should be invested in, right? Should be part of my portfolio. Then I will invest in him because I'm believing in this person who is a specialist in what he's doing and can explain me why he thinks that he will be the best in selecting the right companies. That was my blockchain strategy, by the way. I'm not a crypto native, for example. You know, that's a new okay. term that I've yeah. learned. <laughs> I'm definitely not a crypto native, but I've met the first crypto blockchain related GPs two or three years ago and spent time with them and tried to understand why they think this is something that should be part of my portfolio, right? So I'm still not a crypto native, but I have several crypto funds in my portfolio today, But because I think it should be part of the diversification of my venture portfolio. And so this is something that limits the scalability, in my opinion. To give you another example, if you take some of the firms that tried to scale venture early stage. Like, for example, let's take Antler. You know, Antler, Uh, you probably know Antler. So if you look at Antler's portfolio, I don't know their portfolio 100%, so I can't say anything. But I think they have done almost nothing in blockchain and crypto. So Antler is scaling some part of venture, but they're missing out the new kind of thing. Like today, we can say that probably blockchain and crypto is one of the most successful venture stories this year, right? And they have missed that. And a lot of those scaled, you know, access kind of firms globally miss that part. And if life science is in two years, the next big thing, they will miss it, right? So you don't have this kind of transparency in the market. And that's why it's difficult to scale. That's part one of my answer. Part two is, I think there is potential for scalability around venture, but around the venture model. So we are still working in a very inefficient, especially outside of US, mm-hmm. in a very inefficient structure. Right. So the GPLP structures are complex structures. You need legal advice, tax advice. You need to spend lots of money setting up those. You need fund admins. You need compliance. Like all the things that an emerging manager doesn't want to do, he has to, you know, I'm, I'm spending 50% of my time with these kind of things. And I shouldn't. It's lost time for me. Right, but it's, I still have to do that. And we just talked about reporting KPIs, so you know, fund KPIs. I think these kind of things should be more standardized, can be scaled, can be made much easier, and that's what I believe will come. You know, in the US, you have that already with the angel lists, cartas, assures, etc., where you really have very, very streamlined, efficient processes in most of the things. Setting up a VC fund in the US is super quick, cheap, and super understandable for everyone, like, you know, doing a safe note or something like that. The fund administration, if you do, if you use Carta, is simple and straightforward. Setting up an SPV is fast, quick, simple, straightforward and cheap. So these kind of things are missing at the moment in the rest of the world. You know, one thing is also regulation. I think we don't have one regulated market. That makes it more difficult outside of the US really um, do business. And the ease of business, there lies a lot of potential for scalability in venture so if you increase the ease of business doing venture i think this will come down also to the companies and you know capital raising and raising funds and for lps it will be more efficient uh, it will be cheaper in the end so less cost will be produced for administration in the end right so that makes the whole ecosystem more efficient right so that's something that will change in the next years has to change Do- I think you've seen that maybe there were some discussions on LinkedIn by Michael Jackson and others about venture funds as listed um, yeah. listed equity or listed stocks. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So why not list the venture fund like Great Press Pre has done or board partners in the UK have done. This is the kind of new things where we might need a new kind of structure. Maybe there are there will be new structures and it should be not the Luxembourg old school <laughs> you know, very, very inefficient kind of setup that we are using today. It should be a different setup. If we are innovators, if we invest in innovation and if we create, you know, software products and, and the carters of this world, then this should be faster created also for the venture world. And then maybe from the venture world should go into private equity, should go into hedge funds, should go into other asset classes because all of those old school asset classes are managed extremely less efficient or not efficient, right? So there's there's usual potential.
1: I'm curious, Yeltsin, one thing we have seen is, of course, we're seeing a lot of players trying to make SPVs easier to create by clever tech, but we're also seeing emerging managers using SPV structures to break into venture. So instead of going out, raising a fund, they raise multiple SPVs. What are your views on that? Is it something that for you personally and for multiple is completely not interesting, but you're happy because it's something that generates track record that you can then look at when they start raising a fund?
2: That's a very good question, Aniris, and it's something that I'm like thinking a lot of about because like the real real answer to that is, I think raising capital for one specific thing is much easier than raising capital for a blind pool venture fund, right? So in other words, if you are an emerging manager and you wanna raise a 10 million fund, it is much more difficult to raise the 10 million fund that you wanna invest to 20 or 30 early stage companies in the next three years. So you have to convince LPs about your thesis, about your person, et cetera. They have to trust you and give you money. If there is a company and the company raises a series B or series A, you know, and there is 5 million left and you offer this 5 million in SPV to a handful of LPs. Yeah. I don't know why, but everyone jumps on that, (laughs) right? Because they think that's the, you know, next big thing. But, you know, clearly there's some kind of miseducation in this ecosystem and in the LPs use. Everyone wants to cut corners, yeah. right? So everyone wants to thinks that he is able to select the one single company that will be the super outlier by investing just in one or three companies, but putting a lot of money through an SPV very quickly. So one of the placement agents um, I worked with in the past said, "Ethan, well, raising for you takes us something like six months, <laughs> you know, raising a two million or three million ticket with with an interested LP. Raising for an SPV takes a week, yeah, with the same LP, yeah." And that's, like, that's, that's, I think, I personally think that is a proof for the broken ecosystem. Yeah. Right? People don't understand venture and don't understand that venture is a super high-risk game, even if it's a you know, an SPV into a Series A or a Series B company. There is a very good statistic from Horsley Bridge, which is public in Twitter, that based on their analysis, they have a write-off ratio of 60% in early-stage deals and a write-off ratio of 50% in late-stage deals. So the people think, if I invest in late stage, I will not lose money, which is just wrong by data, right? So you will still lose 50%. In early stage, you will lose 60%, but the upside is much, much higher. So The whole thing in venture, in my opinion, is diversification. If you want to invest as an LP long-term, there is no other way to beat the market sustainably. There is no way to beat the market unless you are maybe you know, an early investor in Sequoia and still an LP in Sequoia or this kind of fund. But most of the LPs today can't invest in a Sequoia, right? So there is no room for new LPs in Sequoia. So just about you know thinking I could invest in Sequoia and could have you know a great allocation and venture is not enough. You need someone like Isomer or Multiple, or you do it yourself, right? So you really go through the market and try to understand who are the ones that I should bet on. But to your back to your question, sorry, I'm talking. Are <laughs> um, we enjoying uh, too much? <laughs> It's a, I think it's a proof for some kind of broken system at the moment and FOMO that people can raise for an SPV in a week millions of money from LPs who, on the other side, need months or sometimes years to invest into a fund, right, into an emerging GP. And with that fund, they would have earlier access to the right companies. Yeah. Right. So typically, if it's a seed fund, so that's my two cents on the SPV um, situation at the moment.
1: Because you point out the problem, and I completely agree with it. But I'm curious as to what you see as being the underlying reason. I have the thought that it's very much an ego thing.
2: As I said, I think the underlying reason is that people think they can beat the market, that they cut, that they can cut the corners, that they can like make a deal. Mm. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, someone offered me an SPV, that sounds like a great deal. You know, we can (laughs) cut the corner, and beat the market, and we'll have a 10x or 100x investment here. And of course, if this is provided to you, if someone brings you an SPV, he will sell it to you, right? So he will not say, hey, look, this is an SPV, but we have a lot of risk in that company, you know. You should probably not invest. he will come to you with this SPV and tell you, this is the greatest company that I have. And you should invest in it. I get 2% management fee and 20% carry on that one single company, right? So it's a great deal for the person offering to you. And he can raise in a week. Imagine, you know, a venture fund, he needs a year to raise 10 million, 20 million sometimes. And some of those funds have needed three years to raise the first 20 million. Don't forget, an SPV is sold. It's a product where people earn money with the SPV. There are fees related to that SPV. It's sold. And it's sold as a great company. And then LPs think now it's we have great access to one single company right we don't have to invest into a blind pool and have risks and you know write off companies that's another big thing people are afraid of they don't want to lose companies like what i'm telling to my lps is always we will lose companies that's part of our business right so in venture if you invest early stage it's just part of the business of course you will lose companies and probably we will lose even 50% of our companies but that's it doesn't matter yeah. if we have Five great outliers out of 500 companies, we could lose 495 companies and it wouldn't matter. Right? So that's the kind of thing that it's super simple to understand, in my opinion, but it's, <laughs> it's, it was very difficult to make them understand this little thing. Yep. No one can accept to lose 50% of his investments or 90% of his investments, like the idea. And the thing with SPVs, they think it's just less risky. It's like a safe bet and venture. You know, one single safe bet in venture. And if the syndicate looks good, like if this company will be sold to you as, you know, this is an SPV, you have access to it. And, you know, Excel is investing with you and Atomico is investing with you and this and that and he and who, you know, you have a great syndicate. So you can't lose... This company. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the fact of the matter is that Excel and Index is investing in fifty other deals that month.
2: <laughs> so even Excel and Index, I mean, of course they will lose company. Of course yeah. they will have like imagine all of the companies would be outliers in Excel and Index portfolio. It's not. It's not possible. Oh. And typically, if there is room left in a syndicate for an SPV, or yeah. friends, then. This is probably not the very best company. Otherwise, you exactly. would fight for the <laughs> exactly. for room and wouldn't let anyone in, in that yeah. company.
0: Exactly. I'm
2: discussing a lot about that, even with other VCs and GPs, and especially, of course, with LPs, because it's a wish thinking, right? So that they have access, as a no-name firm, access to the greatest companies. Why should you? Yeah. But why should a founder take your money? And if, let's say, if there is this kind of it will be a tiny kind of access if there is really a great company and great SPV. But to your question, if we have thought about it, right? So, my current business is primarily to invest in primary funds. So, I'm investing into funds. I don't use SPVs for this. You know, we have one fund, and with that fund, we have LPs in the fund, and we are investing in other funds. Technically, I think it is something that could be done in the future, could be an SPV for specific funds, could be an SPV for a specific LP who wants to invest only in specific funds, for example, I don't know, an impact focused fund of fund, a blockchain focused fund of fund, could be set up as an SPV, right? Technically, if you don't want to go out and raise yeah. capital and the markets, your fund and be regulated. Yeah. And then the other thing is, of course, like, Isomer is doing that, right? So Isomer is a hybrid fund of funds. So they are investing in funds and in companies. Multiple is not doing the second part at the moment, so we are investing only in funds. So far, at least, I would say very successfully (laughs) investing only in funds. But it's something that LPs expect, like LPs think it is, again, they think it is a way to improve returns, and we might also offer something like that in the future. At the moment, we have 600 companies in our portfolio, right? So from those 600 companies, of course, there are probably 20 to 30% interesting companies. So it's 200plus companies that are interesting in our portfolio. So we could set up SPVs for accessing those companies at later stages. That's something in the future that we think about, but still, like I talked publicly about what I think you know, <laughs> of selling SPVs to investors. I personally, for example, still like, if you ask me, like you didn't ask me, let me answer, still <laughs> answer this question. But I personally think that instead of selling one SPV into one company, I like the idea of having, again, a portfolio of companies. So, if I have 500 companies in the fund of fund portfolio, I'd like to set up a vehicle to try to invest into the 50 best companies in my portfolio, right? So, this is still a diversified portfolio, still like a fund, right? But we know the companies, we have access to the companies. So, that's the kind of idea that I've pitched to a few LPs. But it's still too diversified for that. It's it's a it's- <laughs>
1: yeah, they don't get to do it themselves. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to reply to that. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.